just want to thank Tim and the team just for leading us like that. And sometimes it's really hard to get up here and preach because sometimes, I don't know, you feel a bit distant or whatever. But I just really want to thank Tim for leading us into that place where our hearts have been encouraged to be open and just really looking forward to see where this journey that Tim's been on leads us to in camp. I think that's going to be pretty special. Camp's been a bit up and down, as you know, in terms of preparation. Uh, we're about to cancel it because we didn't have enough people. And then we sort of prayed about it as leaders and it became quickly evident that we were to continue because we were going to pay for camp whether or not we had 21 or 30 or whoever. We were still going to pay for 34 positions. So I'm kind of thankful for that. Sometimes the Lord takes a decision out of your hand for a really good reason. And I do think that there is a bit of a theme of God's undying, endless, eternal love. That's kind of what inspires songs. That's what inspires heroics. That's what inspires people to be so much more than what they are. And today, as we continue on in our mega series, Meeting God Almighty, we're meeting uh, a God of love. We're meeting a God who is love. That is his characteristic, as Tim so well put it. And so I thought I'd play a little bit on this idea. I'm sure most Christians have read or have heard of the five languages of um, the five love languages, five love languages of, by Gary Chapman. Is there, has anyone not heard about the five love languages by Gary Chapman? Been on the New York bestseller list since 2009. Oh, you haven't heard about it, Gabe? You can Google it later. Um, anyway, so essentially it's an outline on the, as he sees it, on the five ways to express and experience love. You can actually do a, a survey online with your beloved, find out what love languages are going to predominate in your relationship and how best to understand that from the other person's perspective. So it's a pretty cool book. I, have, I think I read it way back in the day. It's been out since like 1995 or something, but it only got real famous, I think, 2009 or something. But what's your love language? What's your love language, Steve? Touch, yep. Um, Gabby, what's yours? You did the survey. What's that? Quality time, yep. I think there should be a sixth one. It should be food, because I love my food. <laughs> When someone gives me a nice birthday cake that's Black Forest, Black Forest Spectacular, you know, the cream's real, not fake, and you can smell the richness, I, I feel the love. I feel the love, baby. No, let's get more precise. Come on. No, love, food is its own. I don't care if he's an expert. Not real. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so I think you get the idea of love languages and as I was running around the Bankstown cricket ground the other night thinking about the sermon and thinking about this Sunday, it suddenly came to me that this story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is really a story about God's love language. In fact, it's a story about his lost love language. And you might say, oh, does God really have a love language? Uh, I think he does. (laughs) In fact, I know he does. Not perhaps in the way we're thinking of, but definitely, definitely God has a love language. And what I want to say is that language itself is love. You think about it. Language itself is love. Just at its very simplest, if I want to express love to my wife, the predominant way that I do is I actually tell her. (laughs) You know, I know Gabby and Estian are new in their relationship. I'm sure they spend hours talking, just talking. Hey, just talking back and forth, texting, talking. I'm sure we've all done it, those of us are married. Hey, who didn't talk a lot in their relationship? Who just sat there? <laughs> like, who just said, here's a cake, here's my love language, and acts of service? No, you talked. Like, language itself is love. Like, it expresses love in so many ways. I mean, all those great love songs and so forth. 
Um, but language is also love because language is relationship. So you know about me because I've told you things about me. Sometimes you can't see what I'm feeling. Maybe you can see it on my face, but you understand because of the way that I, that I speak. We express ourselves to the other person in uh, language. But also, I don't know if you've thought about this, but language is love because language is creativity. Uh, you think about it. This, this building was built through language. It was built through plans. An architect wrote down words. He then passed on the plans to the builder. The builder said, get me my sledgehammer. The guy didn't pick up a Bosch Blue Brand power drill at that point. He picked up a sledgehammer, or she. Like language infused the building of this building. Language infuses everything that we do. Medicine, already said architecture, city building, food supplies, all those uh, astronauts floating around in space. Without language, it never happens. It never happens. So what do we do with God's love language if we're saying that language is a gift? And look, even, even many secular scholars see that language sets us apart from animals, right? It makes us human. It makes us able to conceptualize things, to create, to interact in ways that animals never can. So I really believe that language itself is a gift of love from God, who is love. So if language is love and it is expressed by God to us, what do we do with God's love language? What do we do with it? What do we do with the gift of language? We build ziggies. That's what we do. Build ziggies. We build them everywhere in our lives, all over the place, the ziggies. You know what a ziggy is? I'll show you an ancient one. Here's one in Mesopotamia. Ziggurats, come on. Ziggurats. You've heard of ziggurats before, haven't you? You haven't heard of a ziggurat? That's why I had to call it a ziggy. We had to, if your name was ziggurat and you came to Australia, you'd be called ziggy pretty darn quick, I reckon. <laughs> all, the, all the zigmeister, okay? Ziggies, ziggurats. So ziggurats were basically ancient structures. They were sort of like a pyramid, but not quite. They were generally flat on top. They went up pretty high. And up the top there, you could offer sacrifices. You could call out to your God, etc. They were tended to dominate. They were intended to be the center of a city. So this ziggurat is at Ur. This ziggy is at Ur. So Ur is the home city of who? Very famous person, Abraham. And funnily enough, this ziggurat at Ur was actually built probably roughly the same time as Abraham was around. They reckon about 2100 BCE. He might have even walked past this on his way to follow the calling of God out of Ur. How amazing is that? Like, I love the Bible because you can Google stuff and you can actually find stuff in the world. So that picture to the right there is what it looked like uh, before it was restored. And then Saddam Hussein actually tried to restore it because it's in modern day Iraq. And uh, sort of got about halfway through and then... uh, the war broke out for the second time, so he parked all his jets at the base of it, hoping no one would bomb it, so they didn't take out this ancient artifact. They did, they bombed it anyway, uh, damaged it a little bit. But that's a ziggurat. So, so in your head, when you think of a ziggurat or a ziggy, think of something that is massive, it dominates. This particular one was about um, 64 metres high, which might not seem that high, but in ancient times it would have really dominated, really wide. I actually found one in Toowoomba, would you believe? I was out riding my bike. And I rode past a ziggurat. Someone's building a ziggurat. Does anyone know where this is? Does anyone know who it is? No, it's not Mort Street. It's down in Redwood Park on the bridal trail. So I'm like thinking about ziggurats. And it's like, there's a ziggurat. Someone's starting to build a ziggurat. Like, I could not believe it. There was a ziggy right there, right there on the trail. I don't, I've still got no idea what that is. Maybe you can help me out. Maybe someone will be able to look that up. So 
We're just going to look at Genesis 11 where a bunch of people take God's love language and they use it for something. They use it to build probably a ziggurat. We're not 100% sure, but we're probably 90% sure that it was a great, big, massive ziggurat. Okay, so we'll just read from Genesis 11, verse 1. The whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they founded a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see that city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So we asked the question, what was done with this love language of God? Well, a bunch of people got together and they began to build not just a tower, which is how we remember this, but a, a, a city. They were building themselves a kingdom. And the tower was to be the centerpiece. It was to dominate. It was so that they could make themselves a name or make for themselves a name. Now, these ziggurats were typically square at the sides, had big sloping um, stairs and so forth there's a whole bunch of mesopotamian ziggurats that are out there that they've actually found and here are some of the names all right so if you're thinking about a ziggurat and you're thinking about what's the purpose of this thing we can get some context from history so here's some names of other ziggurats that are around the place that have now been discovered by archaeology so one of the names is called the house of the link between heaven and earth this is at a place called lhasa the house of the foundation platform of heaven and earth this one is in babylon this is from ancient literature. These don't actually probably exist or we haven't found some of them before. Again, sorry. The mountain of the universe at Asher. Um, these names kind of indicate, I think, what is going on here. These are designed to be almost like uh, a nexus between heaven and earth. They're designed to be a place where you meet with your God, your patron God would dominate up the top there and you would sort of appropriate his services by building this awesome kind of temple, essentially with a flat roof. Um, now, this one at Ur was actually, like I said, built in about 2100 BC. And like I said, it would have dominated. This was the place where people would come to get also maybe their regular food allotments. So it was a place of spiritual nourishment, also a place of um, physical nourishment. And essentially, it was a, just a vintage skyscraper. Um, like I said, some of these could be up to 100 metres high. The one at Ur, I don't know if you realise this, but they made it out of these bricks, okay? And these bricks were... 33 pounds, so I don't know, what's that, 15 kilos. So like a suitcase, each brick was that amount. So not as big as the pyramid kind of um, blocks that were built, but they estimate there would have taken about 720,000 baked bricks just to make this thing at Earth. So you're talking a lot of effort. You're talking a lot of time. You're talking a lot of architecture, a lot of communication about where these bricks are to go, how these bricks are to be made, how it's going to sort of pile up towards the sky when we talk about what's happening at Babel. Um, It was also, like I said, a vintage temple. These ziggies were there to bring physical and spiritual kind of nourishment, insights, worship. 
I'm sure all sorts of weird things went on there. And really what they were about is vintage pride. They were about building a name for ourselves, make this thing taller than any other city. And in Babylon, it was really important for theirs to be bigger than anyone else's. As it says in Genesis 11 verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole earth. So remember in our previous stories together, God has said, Hey, go out, populate the earth. There's some pretty spectacular things waiting for you out there. Go, fill it, be good stewards of it, look after it, go, spread out. So in direct contradiction to that, these people go, no, we will cluster together. We will build a city and we will make a name for ourselves. And notice they're not building this city so much to get to God. It's like to get to the heavens. They don't want to so much to even just talk to God. They want to dominate. It's all about pride. And because of that, they miss out on some really cool things. If, if that had been allowed to continue, they would have missed out on Victoria Falls. Who wouldn't want to see Victoria Falls? <laughs> You know, who wouldn't want to see the Grand Canyon? Who wouldn't want to see the Great Barrier Reef? Who wouldn't want to experience the Aurora Australis, get further enough south so you can see it, or the Aurora Borealis? Like, who would want to miss out on this? This is so typical of human beings. No, 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 this city, kind of this, this plain of shine. No, it looks pretty cool. Let's build a kingdom here. Let's just settle here. Why, why spread out? And yet there's all these amazing things that are waiting, better things that are waiting. And we go, no, 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 I'm happy. I'm happy with my Ziggy right here. Let's build a Ziggy here. And that's what you see happening here. And God, God is going to go, well, I'll probably love you too much to let you get away with this. And if you look at the city and you go, okay, or even look at the ziggurat, you go, what are the foundations? And think about a ziggurat physically. Where are the foundations? They're under the earth, aren't they? Foundations of any building are under the earth. Now, if we want to see the foundations, just rewind a little bit in terms of why this thing's being built in the first place. And if you go back to Genesis 10, just roll back a little bit in your Bible there to verses 8 to 10. We are told within the context of a bunch of more genealogies. So this is after Noah. So Shem, Ham and Japheth, the table of nations that might be called in your Bible. They're they're tracing out what happens after the flood, essentially. And you've basically got the sons and grandsons and great grandsons of Shem, Ham and Japheth, who, as you know, are the sons of Noah. And we're told in verse 8 there that Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the first center of his kingdom was Babylon. Babylon is the same as Babel. Babel is a part of Babylon. So if you want to look at the origins of Babel and the city that's being built there, this kind of gives you the big kind of zoom over rather than zoom in picture. And what you see there is Nimrod builds this city. Now, it's interesting because it says there he's a mighty hunter before. That might actually mean that he has the favour of the Lord, but there's a bit of ambiguity there. We're not quite sure. It could actually mean he was just like a mighty hunter in the face of God, like kind of in a sense of just, I'll be a mighty hunter no matter what. I don't care about you, God. And it kind of would tie in with the rest of the story because Babylon, as we know, becomes one of the most evil empires that has ever been. One of the most spectacular, one of the most beautiful, but also one of the most corrupted. And so what we see is all the the peoples are starting to spread out and they get to the plains of Shinar and they stop there. And it's probably Nimrod. Most ancient scholars think that it was Nimrod. 
And he decides to build this gate of God or his sons or whoever decide to build this gate of God, this city, to build his own kingdom. And they wanted to build a city fit for the gods. And in fact, in ancient literature, we're told they actually consider themselves to be gods. To build a city for God that God accepted meant that they were themselves were some sort of deity. So again, it's like about this kind of this pride, this kind of sense of worship me. It's kind of this sense of like, this city is not being built to help humanity. It's being built to raise the name of a bunch of people. And this is why I kind of say in my little nice uh, saying there, this city, this tower had, un- it had upper world aspirations, but underworld foundations. You know, this idea that pride is going to like, you know, watch out for anything that's built based on pride, based on self-interest. They wanted to be gods. They wanted to control their own destiny. Why well, go out into the world? Let's just make ourselves comfy here. Let's, uh, let's, let's do whatever it takes to make ourselves comfortable here. Now, it's interesting in this very short passage, what do you think is the most important part of this passage? I know it's probably a harder question. I mean, normally, what do we do with an essay or whatever? Where's the most important parts normally? The beginning and the end, isn't it? What do you think? So what's the most important passage or what's the most important verse here, do you think? The beginning or the end? Awkward silence, let it extend another five seconds. The end? No. Thank you, Kerry. <laughs> That's why no one wanted to answer. It was like, um, Bob just said it. So I don't know if you know, but this is a classic example in literature of a ziggurat, literarily, like in the textual nature of this verse, so, or this passage. So I don't know if you know how a chiasm works. In, they're all through the scriptures, and this is a classic one. Scholars often use this. So a chiasm will, in a certain passage, a chunk of text called a pericope, they will match the first and the last verses. Okay, They will have the same theme. They will then match the second and the second last, the third and the third last, the fourth and the fourth last, which leaves like a peak, the middle, which in this case is, but the Lord came down. But the Lord came down. Now, you're all looking at that and you could waste time to continue looking at it, but I'll just get you to look at it later and even Google it. It's really worth, and it's really worth having a look at. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it, but it's really interesting. Have a look at it. But in this case here, the most important part generally is the peak. It's the centerpiece. And you can see a lot of Psalms are like this as well. So the idea is it introduces the idea, introduces the idea, then it twists the idea, it gets to the peak, and then it just turns the idea a little bit by introducing God. And in this case, it is, you've got all the people, they want to, Basically, um, make this huge tower, this huge city, this other own king, and then the Lord comes down. The Lord comes down. And as soon as God shows up, and we're not sure how that happens, whether he walked around, maybe it was the angel of the Lord. We're not really sure representing God. But he comes down, and some scholars have tried to say, oh, look at this. This is like a kind of competitive feel between the, the peoples of the nations and God. It's not that, and you'll see why in a minute. But God comes down. And he now does an assessment of what's being done with his love language. God has come down to see it. And we're told there, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. We've already seen one trajectory of what people have done with God's good gifts. Remember? Do you remember what it led to? It led to the flood. It led to the 
every inclination verse, every inclination of their hearts were wicked. And you can see it starting to happen again. It's starting to repeat again. And God loves his people. He loves humanity too much to say, oh, I'll just let you do that again. I'll just let you, I'll just let you keep going using your pride, your self-interest to build this awesome city. So he comes down and I call it Babel Babel because in the Hebrew, the word Babel actually means confusion. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because they're building this temple, supposedly, or this tower to God, but God has to come down to look at it. Look, he kind of has to come down. What's going on down? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's actually a little bit of a literary kind of ironic thing. It's like these people are building this thing to the heavens and God has to, it's so small to God, he has to come down and have a look at it kind of thing. This is not good for you. So as we know, God confuses them. So all of a sudden, that hammer is not a hammer anymore. Rick, pick up your hammer. Rick picks up his shovel. Rick, I love you. Don't you tell me that you hate me. Rick, sorry for keeping on using you, Rick. I'm hungry for some lunch. What did you just say about my wife? (laughs) I don't know if that really happened. But the idea of language is now being taken away to curtail their sinful trajectory, which was just going to lead to destruction, hateful things happening within the city. And so God comes in and confuses them. And if you want to know what happens after this, you rewind back to Genesis 10. And some people have seen this as a contradiction because in Genesis 10, we're told there that, for instance, verse 20, the sons of Ham by their clans and languages, right? Verse 32 in chapter 10, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Again, it's this idea that they have their own kind of languages. But again, this is just the big picture view. And then the writer wants us to know that, hey, something happened to cause these languages to evolve or to to begin. And so he says, hey, let me tell you about Babel. Let me tell you about pride. Let me tell you about what's being done with God's love languages or God's love language. And so I asked the question at the start, what do we do with God's love language? I don't know if you realize how precious language is. I don't think you realize probably until it's taken away or even like me, when I start studying it at a fairly high level, you begin to get just astounded about how amazing it is. Like to be able to communicate one with another and then all of a sudden to have it not so much taken away, but like fragmented into tiny little capillaries instead of still one big vein of communication. Now there's all these little capillaries, separate capillaries everywhere. All of a sudden, human potential is curtailed for their own good. But so is the ability to understand one another truly. What do we do with God's love language? And what I want to say is I think we build our own little ziggies. We do it all the time. We're often using language to actually comfort ourselves. And I'm so glad that Tim brought out what he did because I feel that it ties in so well with what I want to say here is we've got to be really careful how we use language, how we conceptualize things in our mind because that's what language does. If we are conceptualizing our source of comfort as, say, our job or our health, or our university degree, or our job, or our money, we're essentially building a little ziggy. We're saying, no, 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 Lord, I don't care what you've got for me out there. Right now, I am comfortable. Right now, here is security. Here is, here is solace. Here is, here is power even, because a lot of this is not us being, oh, I'm out of control. It's, it's actually power that we want to grasp so that we can control our lives. And God is always wanting us on the leading edge in a sense. He's always wanting us pushing out, pushing out into unknown territories for him 
pushing out into those kind of, on. I think the old maps was called what, Joe? Terra Incognito. The terrible lands that we don't know about, that we haven't mapped yet. And I'm not talking about going to Mars or something like that. It's actually mapped anyway on Google Earth or Google Mars. I'm talking about though, those things that God calls us to and oftentimes we go, no, no, I'm comfortable here. That's a ziggurat. That's a ziggy. That's a, that's a structure in your life that has underworld foundations. And you might go, no, 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 I've got upper world aspirations for all this stuff. And God's saying, no, no, you don't. I know you too well. And he may well rip that away from you. He may well actually take that away because he loves you too much. Be careful how you build. Be careful what you do with this love language of God. But God's love language has never really been lost, has it? God came down, right? That was the peak of our little literary ziggurat. God came down. Has God, does that sound familiar? God came down. God has come down again. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was, it was language. In, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. That's why I say language is love and love is language because language is creativity. The whole world exists because of words, the word of God. In him was life and that life was the light of men. And in Hebrews, we're told that we've been spoken to by the son and the son, the son of God is the radiance of God's glory. He has spoken to us. He has spoken to us. It's so cool that you can speak to anyone about God's love. You can tell the story in any language. It's not, it's not, it's not actually a really big, complicated thing. If you tried to maybe pass on real high conceptual mathematics in different languages, it's really difficult to do, but... The word of God, who is Jesus, who has come down, who has died for us on a cross, who has risen again from the grave. You can say it in Spanish. You can say it in Arabic. You can easily, easily pass on the love of God. And why is that? It's not because of anything we did. It's because God loves us. God loves us. So he gives us this love language that actually walks around Talks, breathes, sweats, dies. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate love language of God. You can see him. Even now, just through the pages of history, we can see him. We can see him in a way that we've never seen any other God. We can see him when he sits down with that woman at the well. We can see him when he has the meal with his disciples. We can see him when he smashes death and erupts out of there. We see him in the words of history. He's the ultimate love language. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it doesn't stop there. Because then Pentecost happens after Easter. We're we're heading down towards Pentecost. It'll be roughly the time of church camp, actually. And you remember what happens at Pentecost, don't you? Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans, then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Iliamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own text, in our own tongues, 
Amazed and perplexed, they said, what does this mean? A bit of irony. What does this mean? They know what it means. They can hear it. They can hear the wonders of God, the wonders of Jesus being proclaimed. What does this mean? I want you to ask yourself, what does this mean for your neighbour? What does this mean for your family going into the future? What does this mean for your university, for your job, for your workmates? What does this mean for the nation of Australia? That God has sent his love language to us. That God is concerned for us, that he loves us, that he would walk with us. A new kingdom in, uh, at Pentecost is being built. It's the kingdom of God. And it's not a massive tower. Yes, amen, Naomi. It's, a, it's not a massive tower. It's not like an edifice to self, an edifice to humanity. It's invisible in many ways. And it's so amazing to me, it's like God puts his stamp of approval on it by saying, I'm reversing that, that limitation, because language is mine, like God said, language is mine, I've given it to you as a gift. Now I've got every right to place a limitation, especially if it's your own good. We do that for our children all the time. But now, by putting my, my universal language which is the language of Jesus. And now as, as a little glimmer, a miraculous glimmer of the future, now everyone can hear everyone in their different tongues. I'm putting my stamp of approval on it because now you are going to redeem the world. And why wouldn't I want you to be able to communicate and hear all this all at once? That's how I see it. God shows his approval. He gets rid of the Babel babble that was brought about by man's own sin and pride. And now... Now we as Christians, we're doing something noble with language. This is one of the many reasons why I don't like swear words, why I don't like carnal sort of language. Now I've used swear words myself, but language is a gift. Do you really want to use it for that kind of dirty kind of talk, Christians? Why not show a better way? Why not show you can come up with 10 different adjectives for the F word? Why don't you show that? Why don't you ask God to give you that kind of wisdom? But more than that, you know, if your love is, if your words, and James talks about this as well, if your words are going to be used to proclaim the love language of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and at the same time your words are used for twisted, dirty kind of meanings, well, how can that be? How can, how can good and bad flow from the same spring? Now, I know sometimes you stub your toe and the word comes out. I get that. I understand. And sometimes, like a swear word, is probably the only word that fits, maybe. But please don't let that then dominate your language. Like, we have the love language of God, not just on our lips, but it's flowing through us. It's in our DNA. Whenever we proclaim with our mouth and demonstrate with our bodies, maybe it's street teams, maybe it's just that sacrificial act at work, we tell everyone, for God so loved the world that he gave his own, one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I thought it'd be pretty cool just to actually give you an example of how these words can be spoken in any language. And there is something about John 3, 16. I often think to myself, well, imagine if, imagine if every part of the Bible was ripped away from us. There was a virus, took out all the electronic ones or an EMP, took out all the electronic ones, all the written ones were burnt and someone one day just picked up a fragment and it was John 3.16 maybe it was an old hat or something you know or an old bumper sticker and it says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes him shall not perish but have eternal life in this one verse I could go on for the next 10 days because in that one moment if you are in the apocalypse and all you've got is John 3.16 you would know there is a God you would know that he loves 
like you are already hundreds and hundreds of steps ahead of anyone who doesn't have any specific revelation like this. He loved the world. Then you'll find out that he gave his one and only son. And then you'll find out that he's actually, he wants dependence and allegiance so that you won't die. And it could be any word. Like, so I just thought, um, hello. I just thought, now Tiff was going to speak in American for us, but we won't worry about that. <laughs> ben was going to talk in Bogan, but we won't worry about that either. But we will go Afrikaans. Loud and proud. Loud and proud, my friend. Okay. Johannes 3, vers 16. Want so lief het God die wereld gehad, dat hij zijn enige geboren zin gegeven het, zodat so elkeen wat in hom glo, nie verloren mag gaan nie, maar die eeuwige leven sal hee. Amen. Can I get amen? Amen. For God so loved the world. He loved the Afrikaans. He loved the Afrikaans. His message is going to the Afrikaans. Yeah, absolutely. How about Spanish? Oh, actually, you ready to go? All right, Spanish. Loud and proud, brother. Porque de tal manera amó Dios al mundo que dio a su Hijo unigénito para que todo aquel que en él cree no se pierda, mas tenga vida eterna. Juan 3:16. Amen. For God so loved Spain, for God so loved Andrew and Sally, you know, at Pentecost. <laughs> God's love language went out and it's traveled through the eons, through thousands of years, and it ended up at your street, ended up in your house, and all of our houses here, even our next door neighbors. We're going to hear him pigeon. This is top visit below Papua New Guinea. God, Papa, you know, Mama's true long. Just for the ground, long old man, Mary Pickaninny. Now I'm giving him a Pickaninny man belong in, one palatasol. Who's that man, Mary Pickaninny, Billy belong him? And he's not going to die, finish. And we got life, he stopped all time, all time. Amen. God, Papa, say for all time, all time. You know, God's love language traveled through and over geographical expanses into a place where these precious people were actually eating each other. I know friends that had grandparents who were eating each other, and it penetrated into the darkness of that place, and it turned their language, their cannibalistic language, into a love language. That's amazing. For God so loved the world. You know, we're looking for the fellowship of the burning heart. Like A.W. Tozer, we're looking for people that through all generations and everywhere will love the Saviour until adoration has become the new word. This Christ will be their everything. He will be their all in all. Let's pray.